Book One, Chapter One, Sections One to Six of Mr. Britling Sees It Through. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Eastman. Mr. Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. Book One. Matchings Easy at Ease. Chapter the First. Mr. Durick Visits Mr. Britling. One. It was the sixth day of Mr. Durick's first visit to England, and he was at his acutest perception of differences. He found England in every way gratifying and satisfactory, and more of a contrast with things American than he had ever dared to hope. He had promised himself this visit for many years, but being of a sunny rather than energetic temperament, though he firmly believed himself to be a reservoir of clear-sighted American energy, he had allowed all sorts of things, and more particularly the uncertainties of Miss Mamie Nelson, to keep him back. But now there were no more uncertainties about Miss Mamie Nelson, and Mr. Durick had come over to England just to convince himself, and everybody else, that there were other interests in life for him than Mamie. And also he wanted to see the old country from which his maternal grandmother had sprung. Wasn't there even now, in his bedroom in New York, a watercolor of Market Saffron Church, where the dear old lady had been confirmed? And generally he wanted to see Europe, as an interesting sideshow to the excursion, he hoped, in his capacity of the rather underworked and rather over-salaried secretary of the Massachusetts Society for the Study of Contemporary Thought, to discuss certain agreeable possibilities with Mr. Britling, who lived at Matching's Easy. Mr. Durick was a type of man not uncommon in America. He was very much after the fashion of that clean and pleasant-looking person one sees in the advertisements in American magazines, that agreeable person who smiles and says, Good, it's the Fitzgig brand, or Yes, it's a Wilkins, and that's the best, or My shirt-front never rucks, it's a Chesson. But now he was saying, still with the same firm smile, Good, it's English. He was pleased by every unlikeness to things American, by every item he could hail as characteristic. In the train to London he had laughed aloud with pleasure at the checkerboard of little fields upon the hills of Cheshire. He had chuckled to find himself in a compartment without a corridor. He had tipped the polite yet kindly guard magnificently, after doubting for a moment whether he ought to tip him at all and he had gone about his hotel in London saying, Lordy, Lordy, my word, in a kind of ecstasy, verifying the delightful absence of telephone, of steam heat, of any dependent bathroom. At breakfast the waiter, out of Dickens it seemed, had refused to know what cereals were, and had given him his egg in a china egg cup, such as you see in the pictures in Punch. The Thames, when he had sallied out to see it, had been too good to be true, the smallest thing in rivers he had ever seen. 
and he had had to restrain himself from affecting a marked accent and accosting some passer-by with the question say but is this little wet ditch here the historical river thames in america it must be explained mr durrock spoke a very good and careful english indeed but he now found the utmost difficulty in controlling his impulse to use a high-pitched nasal drone and indulge in dry americanisms and poker metaphors upon all occasions when people asked him questions he wanted to say yep or sure words he would no more have used in america than he could have used a bowie knife but he had a sense of role he wanted to be visibly and audibly america eye-witnessing he wanted to be just exactly what he supposed an englishman would expect him to be at any rate his clothes had been made by a strongly american new york tailor and upon the strength of them a taxi-man had assumed politely but firmly that the shillings on his taxi-meter were dollars an incident that helped greatly to sustain the effect of mr durrock in mr durrock's mind as something standing out with an almost representative clearness against the english scene so much so that the taxi-man got the dollars because all the time he had been coming over he had dreaded that it wasn't true that england was a legend that london would turn out to be just another thundering great new york and the english exactly like new englanders two and now here he was on the branch line of the little old great eastern railway on his way to matching's easy in essex and he was suddenly in the heart of washington irving's england washington irving's england indeed it was he couldn't sit still and just peep at it he had to stand up in the little compartment and stick his large firm-featured kindly countenance out of the window as if he greeted it the country under the june sunshine was neat and bright as an old-world garden with little fields of corn surrounded by dog-rose hedges and woods and small rushy pastures of an infinite tidiness he had seen a real deer park it had rather tumble down iron gates between its shield surmounted pillars and in the distance beyond all question was bracebridge hall nestled among great trees he had seen thatched and timbered cottages and half a dozen inns with creaking signs he had seen a fat vicar driving himself along a grassy lane in a governess cart drawn by a fat grey pony it wasn't like any reality he had ever known it was like travelling in literature mr britling's address was the dower house and it was mr britling's note had explained on the farther edge of the park at clavering's clavering's the very name for some stately home of england and yet this was only forty-two miles from london surely it brought things within the suburban range if matching's easy were in america commuters would live there but in supposing that mr durrock displayed his ignorance of a fact of the greatest importance to all who would understand england there is a gap in the suburbs of london 
the suburbs of London stretch west and south, and even west by north. But to the northeastward there are no suburbs. Instead, there is Essex. Essex is not a suburban county. It is a characteristic and individualized county which wins the heart. Between dear Essex and the center of things lie two great barriers, the east end of London and Epping Forest. Before a train could get to any villadom with a cargo of season ticket-holders, it would have to circle about this rescued woodland and travel for twenty unprofitable miles. And so, once you are away from the main great eastern lines, Essex still lives in the peace of the eighteenth century. And London, the modern Babylon, is, like the stars, just a light in the nocturnal sky. In Matching's Easy, as Mr. Britling presently explained to Mr. Durrock, there are half a dozen old people who have never set eyes on London in their lives, and do not want to. Ay-ya! Fussin' about there? Mr. Robinson, he went to line, ye did? That's how he hurt his foot. Mr. Durrock had learnt at the mainline junction that he had to tell the guard to stop the train for Matching's Easy. It only stopped by request. The thing was getting better and better. And when Mr. Durrock seized his grip and got out of the train, there was just one little old Essex stationmaster and porter and signalman and everything, holding a red flag in his hand, and talking to Mr. Britling about the cultivation of the sweet peas which glorified the station. And there was the Mr. Britling, who was the only item of business and the greatest expectation in Mr. Durrock's European journey. And he was quite unlike the portraits Mr. Durrock had seen, and quite unmistakably Mr. Britling all the same, since there was nobody else upon the platform, and he was advancing with a gesture of welcome. "'Did you ever see such peas, Mr. Dick?' said Mr. Britling by way of introduction. "'My word!' said Mr. Durrock in a good old farmer hayseed kind of voice. "'Ay-ya!' said the station-master, in singularly strident tones. "'It be a rare year for sweet-peas!' And then he slammed the door of the carriage in a leisurely manner, and did dismissive things with his flag, while the two gentlemen took stock, as people say, of one another. 3. Except in the doubtful instance of Miss Mamie Nelson, Mr. Durrock's habit was good fortune. Pleasant things came to him. Such was his position as the salaried secretary of the Society of Thoughtful Massachusetts Businessmen to which allusion has been made. Its purpose was to bring itself expeditiously into touch with the best thought of the age. Too busily occupied with practical realities to follow the thought of the age through all its divagations and into all its recesses, these Massachusetts businessmen had had to consider methods of access more quintessential and nuclear. And they had decided not to hunt out the best thought in its merely germinating stages, but to wait until it had emerged and flowered to some trustworthy recognition, and then, rather than toil through recondite and possibly already reconsidered books and writings generally, to offer an impressive fee to the emerged new thinker, 
and to invite him to come to them, and to lecture to them, and to have a conference with them, and to tell them simply, competently, and completely at first hand just all that he was about. To come, in fact, and be himself, in a highly concentrated form. In this way, a number of interesting Europeans had been given very pleasant excursions to America, and the society had been able to form very definite opinions upon their teaching. And Mr. Britling was one of the representative thinkers upon which the society had decided to inform itself. It was to broach this invitation, and to offer him the impressive honorarium by which the society honoured not only its guests but itself, that Mr. Durrock had now come to Matching Zizi. He had already sent Mr. Britling a letter of introduction, not indeed intimating his precise purpose, but mentioning merely a desire to know him, and the letter had been so happily phrased, and its writer had left such a memory of pleasant hospitality on Mr. Britling's mind during Mr. Britling's former visit to New York, that it had immediately produced for Mr. Durrock an invitation, not merely to come and see him, but to come and stay over the weekend. And here they were shaking hands. Mr. Britling did not look at all as Mr. Durrock had expected him to look. He had expected an Englishman in a country costume of golfing tweeds, like the Englishman in country costume one sees in American illustrated stories. Drooping out of the country costume of golfing tweeds, he had expected to see the mildly unhappy face, pensive even to its drooping moustache, with which Mr. Britling's publisher had for some faulty and unfortunate reason familiarized the American public. Instead of this, Mr. Britling was in a miscellaneous costume, and mildness was the last quality one could attribute to him. His moustache, his hair, his eyebrows bristled. His flaming freckled face seemed about to bristle too. His little hazel eyes came out with a ping and looked at Mr. Durrock. Mr. Britling was one of a large but still remarkable class of people, who seem at the mere approach of photography to change their hair, their clothes, their moral natures. No photographer had ever caught a hint of his essential brittlingness and bristlingness. Only the camera could ever induce Mr. Brittling to brush his hair, and for the camera alone did he reserve that expression of submissive martyrdom Mr. Durrock knew. And Mr. Durrock was altogether unprepared for a certain casualness of costume that sometimes overtook Mr. Brittling. He was wearing now a very old blue flannel blazer, no hat, and a pair of knickerbockers, not tweed breeches but tweed knickerbockers of a remarkable bagginess, and made of one of those virtuous socialistic homespun tweeds that drag out into woolly knots and strings wherever there is attrition. His stockings were worsted and wrinkled, and on his feet were those extraordinary slippers of bright-coloured, bast-like interwoven material one buys in the north of France. These were purple with a touch of green. He had, in fact, thought of the necessity of meeting Mr. Durrock at the station at the very last moment, and had come away from his study in the clothes that had happened to him when he got up. 
His face wore the amiable expression of a wire-haired terrier disposed to be friendly, and it struck Mr. Durrock that for a man of his real intellectual distinction, Mr. Britling was unusually short. For there can be no denying that Mr. Britling was, in a sense, distinguished. The hero and subject of this novel was, at its very beginning, a distinguished man. He was in the who's who of two continents. In the last few years he had grown with some rapidity into a writer recognized and welcomed by the more cultivated sections of the American public, and even known to a select circle of British readers. To his American discoverers he had first appeared as an essayist, a serious essayist, who wrote about aesthetics and oriental thought and national character and poets and painting. He had come through America some years ago as one of those con scholars, those promising writers and intelligent men endowed by Auguste Con of Paris, who go about the world nowadays in comfort and consideration, as the travelling guests of that original philanthropist, to acquire the international spirit. Previously he had been a critic of art and literature, and a writer of thoughtful third leaders in the London Times. He had begun with a Pembroke Fellowship and a prize poem. He had returned from his world tour to his reflective yet original corner of the Times, and to the production of books about national relationships and social psychology that had brought him rapidly into prominence. His was a naturally irritable mind, which gave him point and passion. And moreover, he had a certain obstinate originality and a generous disposition, so that he was always lively, sometimes spacious, and never vile. He loved to write and talk. He talked about everything. He had ideas about everything. He could no more help having ideas about everything than a dog can resist smelling at your heels. He sniffed at the heels of reality. Lots of people found him interesting and stimulating. A few found him seriously exasperating. He had ideas in the utmost profusion about races and empires and social order and political institutions and gardens and automobiles and the future of India and China and aesthetics and America and the education of mankind in general and all that sort of thing. Mr. Durrock had read a very great deal of all this expressed opinionativeness of Mr. Britling. He found it entertaining and stimulating stuff, and it was with genuine enthusiasm that he had come over to encounter the man himself. On his way across the Atlantic and during the intervening days, he had rehearsed this meeting in varying keys, but always on the supposition that Mr. Britling was a large, quiet, thoughtful sort of man, a man who would, as it were, sit in a tent of rows like a public meeting and listen. So Mr. Durrock had prepared quite a number of pleasant and attractive openings, and now he felt was the moment for some one of these various simple, memorable utterances. But in none of these forecasts had he reckoned with either the spontaneous activities of Mr. Britling, or with the station-master of Matching's Easy. 
oblivious of any conversational necessities between Mr. Durick and Mr. Britling, this official now took charge of Mr. Durick's gripsack, and falling into line with the two gentlemen as they walked towards the exit gate, resumed what was evidently an interrupted discourse upon sweet peas, originally addressed to Mr. Britling. He was a small elderly man with a determined-looking face and a sea voice, and it was clear he overestimated the distance of his hearers. "'Mr. Darling, what's head gardener up at Clavering's, he can't get sweet peas like that. Try how he will. Tried everything he has. Sand ballast he's tried. Seeds same as mine. He came along here only the other day, he did, and he says to me, he says, "'Darn if I can see why a station-master should beat a professional gardener at his own game,' he says. "'But you do. And in your orf time, too, so's to speak,' he says. "'I've tried sile,' he says.' "'Your first visit to England?' asked Mr. Britling of his guest. "'Absolutely,' said Mr. Durick. "'I says to him, there's one thing you haven't tried,' I says. The station-master continued, raising his voice by a Herculean feat still higher. "'I've got a little car outside here,' said Mr. Britling. "'I'm a couple of miles from the station.' "'I says to him,' I says, "'Have you tried the vibration of the trains?' I says. "'That's what you haven't tried, Mr. Darling. "'That's what you can't try,' I says. "'But you rest assured that that's the secret of my sweet peas,' I says. "'Nothing less and nothing more than the vibration of the trains.' Mr. Durick's mind was a little confused by the double nature of the conversation, and by the fact that Mr. Britling spoke of a car when he meant an automobile, he handed his ticket mechanically to the station-master, who continued to repeat and endorse his anecdote at the top of his voice, as Mr. Britling disposed himself and his guest in the automobile. "'You know, you haven't hurt that mudguard, sir, not the slightest bit that matters,' shouted the station-master. "'I've been looking at it. Er, it's my fence that suffered most, and that's only strained the post a little bit. Shall I put your bag in behind, sir?' Mr. Durick assented, and then, after a momentary hesitation, rewarded the station-master's services. "'Ready?' asked Mr. Britling. "'That's all right, sir,' the station-master reverberated. With a rather wide curve, Mr. Britling steered his way out of the station into the high road. 4. And now, it seemed, was the time for Mr. Durick to make his meditated speeches. But an unexpected complication was to defeat this intention. Mr. Durick perceived almost at once that Mr. Britling was probably driving an automobile for the first, or second, or at the extremest the third time in his life. The thing became evident when he struggled to get into the high gear, an attempt that stopped the engine, and it was even more startlingly so when Mr. Britling narrowly missed a collision with a baker's cart at a corner. "'I pressed the accelerator,' he explained afterwards, instead of the brake. "'One does at first. I missed him by less than a foot.' The estimate was a generous one. And after that Mr. Durick became too anxious not to distract his host's thoughts to persist with his conversational openings. An attentive silence came upon both gentlemen, 
that was broken presently by a sudden outcry from Mr. Britling, and a great noise of tormented gears. "'Damn!' cried Mr. Britling, and "'How the devil!' Mr. Durick perceived that his host was trying to turn the car into a very beautiful gateway, with gatehouses on either side. Then it was manifest that Mr. Britling had abandoned this idea, and then they came to a stop a dozen yards or so along the main road. "'Missed it!' said Mr. Britling, and took his hands off the steering-wheel and blew stormily, and then whistled some bars of a fretful air, and became still. "'Do we go through these ancient gates?' asked Mr. Durick. Mr. Britling looked over his right shoulder, and considered problems of curvature and distance. "'I think,' he said, "'I will go round outside the park. It will take us a little longer, but it will be simpler than backing and manoeuvring here now. These electric starters are remarkably convenient things. Otherwise, now I should have to get down and wind up the engine.' After that came a corner the rounding of which seemed to present few difficulties, until suddenly Mr. Britling cried out, "'Eh! Eh! Eh! Oh, damn!' Then the two gentlemen were sitting side by side in a rather sloping car that had ascended the bank and buried its nose in a hedge of dog-rose and honeysuckle, from which two missile-thrushes, a blackbird, and a number of sparrows had made a hurried escape. Five. Perhaps, said Mr. Britling, without assurance, and after a little peaceful pause, I can reverse out of this. He seemed to feel some explanation was due to Mr. Durick. You see, at first, it's perfectly simple. One steers round a corner, and then one doesn't put the wheel straight again, and so one keeps on going round, more than one meant to. It's the bicycle habit. The bicycle rights itself. One expects a car to do the same thing. It was my fault. The book explains all this question clearly, but just at the moment I forgot." He reflected and experimented in a way that made the engine scold and fuss. "'You see, she won't budge for the reverse. She's embedded. Do you mind getting out and turning the wheel back? Then, if I reverse, perhaps we'll get a move on.' Mr. Durick descended, and there were considerable efforts. "'If you'd just grip the spokes—' "'Yes, so. One, two, three. "'No. "'Well, let's just sit here until somebody comes along to help us. "'Oh, somebody will come all right. "'Won't you get up again?' And after a reflective moment, Mr. Durick resumed his seat beside Mr. Britling. Six. The two gentlemen smiled at each other to dispel any suspicion of discontent. "'My driving leaves something to be desired,' said Mr. Britling, with an air of frank impartiality. "'But I have only just got this car for myself, after some years of hired cars. The sort of lazy arrangement, where people supply car, driver, petrol, tires, insurance, and everything at so much a month.' It bored me abominably. I can't imagine now how I stood it for so long. 
they sent me down a succession of compact, scornful boys, who used to go fast when I wanted to go slow, and slow when I wanted to go fast, and who used to take every corner on the wrong side at top speed, and charge dogs and hens for the sport of it, and all sorts of things like that. They would not even let me choose my roads. I should have got myself a car long ago, and driven it, if it wasn't for that infernal business with the handle one had to do when the engine stopped. But here, you see, is a reasonably cheap car with an electric starter. American, I need scarcely say. And here I am, going at my own pace. Mr. Durrick glanced for a moment at the petty disorder of the hedge in which they were embedded, and smiled and admitted that it was certainly much more agreeable. Before he had finished saying as much, Mr. Britling was talking again. He had a quick and rather jerky way of speaking. He seemed to fire out a thought directly it came into his mind, and he seemed to have a loaded magazine of thoughts in his head. He spoke almost exactly twice as fast as Mr. Durrick, clipping his words much more, using much compacter sentences, and generally cutting his corners, and this put Mr. Durrick off his game. That rapid attack, while the transatlantic interlocutor is deploying, is indeed a not infrequent defect of conversations between Englishmen and Americans. It is a source of many misunderstandings. The two conceptions of conversation differ fundamentally. The English are much less disposed to listen than the American. They have not quite the same sense of conversational give and take, and at first they are apt to reduce their visitors to the role of auditors, wondering when their turn will begin. Their turn never does begin. Mr. Durrick sat deeply in his slanting seat, with a half-face to his celebrated host, and said, Yep, and sure, and that is so, in the dry, grave tones that he believed an Englishman would naturally expect him to use, realizing this only very gradually. Mr. Britling, from his praise of the enterprise that had at last brought a car he could drive within his reach, went on to that favorite topic of all intelligent Englishmen, the adverse criticism of things British. He pointed out that the central position of the brake and gear levers in his automobile made it extremely easy for the American manufacturer to turn it out either as a left-handed or a right-handed car and so adapt it either to the continental or to the British rule of the road. No English cars were so adaptable. We British suffered much from our insular rule of the road, just as we suffered much from our insular weights and measures. But we took a perverse pride in such disadvantages. The eruption of American cars into England was a recent phenomenon. It was another triumph for the tremendous organizing ability of the American mind. They were doing with the automobile what they had done with clocks and watches and rifles. They had standardized and machined wholesale, while the British were still making the things one by one. It was an extraordinary thing that England, which was the originator of the industrial system and the original developer of the division of labor, should have so fallen away from systematic manufacturing. He believed this was largely due to the influence of Oxford and the established church. At this point Mr. Durrick was moved by an anecdote. 
it will help to illustrate what you are saying, Mr. Britling, about systematic organization, if I tell you a little incident that happened to a friend of mine in Toledo, where they are setting up a big plant with a view to capturing the entire American and European market in the class of the thousand-dollar car. There's no end of such little incidents, said Mr. Britling, cutting in without apparent effort. You see, we get it on both sides. Our manufacturer class was, of course, originally an insurgent class. It was a class of distended craftsmen. It had the craftsmen's natural enterprise and natural radicalism. As soon as it prospered and sent its boys to Oxford, it was lost. Our manufacturing class was assimilated in no time to the conservative classes, whose education has always had a Mandarin quality, very, very little of it, and very cold and choice. In America you have so far had no real conservative class at all. Fortunate continent! You cast out your Tories, and you are left with nothing but Whigs and Radicals. But our peculiar bad luck has been to get a sort of revolutionary who is a Tory Mandarin too. Ruskin and Morris, for example, were as reactionary and anti-scientific as the dukes and the bishops. Machine-haters, science-haters, rule of thumbites to the bone. So are our current socialists. They filled this country with the idea that the ideal automobile ought to be made entirely by the hand-labor of traditional craftsmen, quite individually, out of beaten copper, wrought iron, and seasoned oak. All this electric starter business, and this electric lighting outfit I have here, is perfectly hateful to the English mind. It isn't that we are simply backward in these things, we are antagonistic. The British mind has never really tolerated electricity, at least not that sort of electricity that runs through wires, too slippery and glib for it, associates it with Italians and fluency generally, with Volta, Galvani, Marconi, and so on. The proper British electricity is that high-grade useless long sparking stuff you get by turning round a glass machine. Stuff we used to call frictional electricity. Keep it in Leiden jars. At Clavering's here they still refuse to have electric bells. There was a row when the Solomonsons, who were tenants here for a time, tried to put them in. Mr. Durick had followed this cascade of remarks with a patient smile and a slowly nodding head. What you say, he said, forms a very marked contrast indeed with the sort of thing that goes on in America. This friend of mine I was speaking of, the one who is connected with an automobile factory in Toledo. Of course, Mr. Britling burst out again, even conservatism isn't an ultimate thing. After all, we and your enterprising friend at Toledo are very much the same blood. The conservatism, I mean, isn't racial and our earlier energy shows it isn't in the air or in the soil. England has become unenterprising and sluggish because England has been so prosperous and comfortable. Exactly, said Mr. Durick. My friend of whom I was telling you was a man named Robinson, which indicates pretty clearly that he was of genuine English stock, and, if I may say so, quite of your build and complexion. Racially, I should say, he was, well, very much what you are. End of Book 1, Chapter 1, Sections 1 to 6